Okay, ladies and gents, how are you? I'm David Foreman. Really nice to see you. Hug some math to you. Um, and excited to be able to uh, chat with you this evening about some things that, that matter. So the good news is I'm very excited about what I want to share with you tonight. The bad news is that um, I've been thinking about it and thinking about it. And the more I've been thinking about it, the more it's expanded. So uh, as glorious as this is, I'm just going to be giving you a taste of a larger picture, which I hope to hopefully put out on Aleph Beta um, one of these days uh, soon. So hopefully um, you'll do that. By the way, uh, the Aleph Beta people, if you're interested in you know, recordings and, and videos and things like that, go to alapeta.org or ab.video. Um, and they tell me that they're offering a 30-day free subscription to you guys if you just use the, the coupon code, ready, quiet, hush, drum roll please, Hakotel, okay? <laughs> just H-A-K-Hakotel, just the way you spell it, uh, lowercase, and that'll get you a 30-day free subscription and you can see and use what you want on there. Um, what I want to talk with you tonight is about, is something that I think is, is an appropriate thing to talk about specifically tonight. Tonight, Hoshana Rabbah is really the end. We wish everyone a good fit till it's the end of the Yimei And one of the main features of the Yimei which we just finished, is Slichot. Um, over and over again we say Slichot, and when we say these Slichot, these penitential prayers, we have a refrain, which is really the main idea that we say over and over again. And the refrain comes from the Torah itself. It comes from the Yud Gil It comes from the 13 attributes of compassion that God reveals to Moshe at a particular moment in the aftermath of the Golden Calf, a story that hopefully, if time permits, we'll be looking at in some detail tonight. In any case, we quote this, and we quote it because the sages tell us in the Talmud that any time we invoke the 13 attributes of compassion. They have some sort of power to invoke the power of forgiveness. Forgiveness is something we're really interested in. So we keep on saying these words, Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachum V'chanon, God, a gracious and merciful God, Erech Apayim, Rav Chesed V'emet. And you know, we know, all, know, all know these words by heart. We have a song, we sing it. And yet, this year, um, I was startled by these words. And we're going to have a little group therapy session here tonight to talk about that. Um, it struck me as just jarring because if you compare these words that we say over and over again when we invoke the Yudgimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimim
So help me just translate these last words, free form. If you know Hebrew, no se avon, how do you translate those words? No se avon, what does God do? He carries sin. Avon, these are all synonyms for sin. Avon, fesha vechata, these different synonyms for sin, he carries them. Venake, and what does venake mean? And he, he cleanses us. So that's good news, right? Because, like, I read this, and I say, that's amazing. I'm going to uh, go to this God. He's going to forgive me of my sins, and he's going to be cleansed, and it's going to be amazing. I'm going to go through Yom Kippur. I'm going to go through this process, and I'm going to be cleansed of sin. Here's the downer, guys. It ain't what it says. That's not what it says in the actual Yud Gilmidah if you know the actual Yudgim what Chazal did is they abridged them at a really convenient point. Because what's the next word? Oh, isn't that interesting? Lo Yinake. So let's actually look at the whole phrase. The whole phrase that originally appears after God declares himself a gracious and merciful God, he says, Venake, lo Yinake. Now, how do we even punctuate that? Like the way I would punctuate is that, Nake, question mark, lo Yinake. Why? Why? God says, I will visit the sins of fathers upon children, up even to the second generation, to the third generation, and to the fourth generation. That's what it actually says in the Yudhyam which is like terrible, right? I mean, like how awful to think about the, having to have that faith. But here's the thing. Chazal, or whoever put together the Yerbiomidas that we have in Srichot, abridged this right before the words Lo Yinake, right? So it creates the impression that God said exactly the opposite of what it says in Shmos. Do you understand? Like, put yourself in God's shoes. Imagine people are coming. Like, do you understand the problem here? Like, how do we have the temerity, the chutzpah, to come to God at, with our tin cup in hand? asking for forgiveness these days, and we misquote him about what he actually said about forgiveness, and we say, God, you know, we count you to be gracious, gracious, merciful, and for sure you're going to cleanse our sins. Hello, that's not what he said. He said, and cleanse your sins? I'm not going to cleanse your sins. I'm going to visit the sins of parents upon children and this nightmare kind of thing that goes and, and, and for generations. And it's like, how can we have the gall to come to God and abridge what he says and change its meaning. Do you understand? And say, God, you know, we can count on you to be gracious and merciful and to cleanse of our sins. It's like, if I was God, you know what I mean? And you guys came to me with that request, I mean, just imagine what God might say. That's a pretty risky endeavor, wouldn't you think? Like, what's to stop God from saying, not only am I mad at you because you sinned, you know, but... Uh, but now you come and you, and you demand forgiveness because of a selective reading of what I actually said, and you're going to misquote me, and like, now I'm mad at you doubly, right? I'm mad at you for that too. Like, it's a risky thing to do this. Like, I, I would say, the point is, this is not a small question, okay? If you don't have an answer to this question, going into Slichos, maybe you shouldn't say them. Do you know what I mean? Because it's a risky thing. Like, how do you know God's not going to be mad at you? Like, I, I'd rather not get God mad at me by misquoting him. So how did Chazal have the temerity to literally, like, change the Yudgim Amidah Sarachamim 
and to stop at Renake and to leave out the next part. They also did something else which is kind of subtle. In the original, what happens is that God says this, Moshe then bows before God, and then says the following words which you can find on the second page of your sheets, on the back of the page. Shmos Lamadalad, you can follow along with me on Pasuk Ches. Vayimayar Moshe vayikodat zavayishtachu. Moshe then immediately goes and bows, and he says, God, can you please walk with us? It's an, this is an Am Kshayorif, it's a stiff-necked people. We want you, I want you to forgive our sins. Now, interestingly, what we've done, notice what we've done, is Chazal have stitched together those words and sort of inserted them into the Yudgim as if the Yudgim conclude with that. Almost like as if they conclude with that instead of lo yinake, as if God said that, which of course isn't really true because like there's a grammatical problem. Do you understand? The first part of the Yuvim Midrachim is in third person. Hashem, Hashem, Kel Racham, Mechanan. Then the Salach, the Lavonenu is not the same phrase. That's in second person. It, does, it doesn't even fit, but the editor kind of like stuck it in instead and sort of created this abridged version of the story in Shemot as if to suggest that it's all part of the Yudgim Midrachim. We then go in Slichot to words, and you can find this in the last section of the beginning. We say, Please, could you, could you forgive the avon of this people because your, your, your kindness is great? And as you bore them from Egypt until now, and there it says, God says, I've forgiven you as you've asked. Now, anyone know where those words come from? Those words come from Sefer Bamidbar, okay? Why do they come from Sefer Bamidbar, the book of Numbers? Where do they come from in the book of Numbers? Anyone know? Free code for correct answer? The story of the Meraglin, the story of the spies. Why? Because Moshe was taught the 13 attributes by God in the aftermath of the golden calf, but he invoked those 13 attributes in the aftermath of the story of the spies. So this one actually comes to pass, right? So when it actually comes to pass, God, Moshe, again, makes this plea for forgiveness, and God says, So we append that. It's a little bit funny, by the way, just a little small question. The Vesham Namar is funny. You know why it's funny? Vesham Namar? Because it's the very next verse. There's two verses right together. Where the first verse is where Moshe says, Could you please forgive us? And then God says, I forgive you. For some reason, we have a Vesham Namar, as if the narrator is saying, and there it says, but it, you don't really need that, seemingly, because it's just the next verse. So I really have three questions for you, but the first is by far the largest question, right? Question number one, how could Chazal have the chutzpah to change the Yudim Mitzvahim pretend that God says he wipes away sin when he says the exact opposite? Question number two, why do they take the Salah and put it as if it's, which is really Moshe's words, a plea, and put it as if it's in God's words, in the Yugamino Sarachimim, and why does it say Visham Namar when we quote the verses from Ben Midbar? Small question, but those are my questions this year on Slichot. And tonight I'd like to talk to you about a theory that resolves these questions, most of all, the first question. And it's a theory that I'll just say to you very briefly now 
and then try to elaborate what I mean by this. But just as a teaser, my theory is this. Often when we think about forgiveness, we think about something static. It's an idea. It is what it is. And the Torah references that idea, right? There's this thing called forgiveness. And you can find it in Breshit, you can find it in Shemot, you can find it in Bamidbar. There's this thing called forgiveness. I want to suggest that that's not true. There's not a static thing called forgiveness. There's a dynamic thing called forgiveness. The idea of forgiveness actually evolves in the Torah. It starts out as one thing, and it slowly evolves into another thing. Now, the night is young, and if I had all night with you, I could chart, we could spend the entire night charting the journey of forgiveness throughout the Torah. We don't be able to do all that, so I'm just going to give you a couple of highlights from tonight. Um, and tonight, I think what I'm going to focus on um, is um, two places that are the context for the Yud Gimel Midat One I'll call the context for the 13 attributes, and the other I'll call the meta-context for the 13 attributes. The context is, the 13 attributes don't show up anywhere. They happen in a story, in the story of the aftermath of the golden calf, a story that Mayor and I actually worked on a bit together many, many years ago. Um, the, in order to really understand what's happening with the Yud Gimel Midat, you have to understand it in the context what was happening in the story of the golden calf, and what role does the Yud Gimel play within that story. And that's one thing I'd like to get to tonight. But I'd also like to talk about the meta-context of the Yud Gimel What I mean by that is, is that, shockingly, even though, you know, when you read the story of the Yud Gimel God's revelation of these 13 attributes, it strikes you that something original is happening, like, there's this moment of revelation, right? God is up there on, on Chorib with Moshe. Moshe says, show me who you really are. God is going to give him a glimpse of his essence, says, I can't show you my face. I can show you my back. I can give you these little glimpses of who I am. And then there's this amazing revelation. Who is God? He's the God of compassion. He's the God of all these different attributes of compassion. And it sounds like that's the first we've heard of that. Right? All of these words, Hashem, Hashem, Kalrachim, Khanan, these are all new words, but it turns out they're not. It turns out that some of these words have appeared before. And to really understand the journey of the idea of forgiveness, you have to look at where these words have appeared before. Because the Yagyamim is quoting earlier texts and incorporating them as part of what's going on. One text is actually the second commandment of the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to get into that in detail tonight, but just suffice it to say that if you look at the second commandment, you can see it on the second page of your handouts, you'll see that it's got like two phrases that are like lifted shamelessly from there into the Yud Gimel right? Can you find them? Let's read them. And by the way, as I read them, I'd like to do a little exercise with you. What's the tone of the second commandment, the tone of these words? Right? Not just the content of these words, the tone. I want you to keep this in the back of your mind, then you tell me, give me a word for the tone of what of God and the second commandment. Ready? Lo tasa You shall not make idols. Asher Not in heavens, not on the earth, not in the water underneath the earth. Lo You shall not bow to them. Lo You shall not worship them. Because I am the Lord your God. And I'm a jealous God. I visit the sins 
of fathers upon children, al for three generations, even for four generations, lisonai, to those who hate me. And I do good, and I do kindness to a thousand generations, to those who love me and keep my commands. Okay, you just read those words. First of all, you heard those words that show up in the Yogyamilis. You got that? What phrase, what two phrases reappear in the actual Yogyamilis? Right? Which ones? A, Pokeda Vonavot Avanim. That shows up first in the Ten Commandments. And B, this business of Notzer Chesalalafim, right? That also appears in, earlier in the second day. But now let me get you to the question of tone. What was the tone? Imagine you're at Sinai, you're listening to the Second Commandment, and your friend says, gee, how's God feeling? How are you feeling about God? You just listen to the command. Talk to me. Tone. Oh, you just, what's the tone? It was a threat, right? Like, that's a scary tone, right? Like, I mean business when I say, do not worship idols, right? I, I really mean that. I'm a jealous God. I am going to defend my honor. I'm not going to take this line down. I'm even going to visit the sins of parents upon children for generations, right? That's, that's what's going to happen. Listen, I, right? Now, what if I challenge you and says, one second, how come you guys were all so unanimous that this was a scary, threatening tone? Doesn't it say at the end, uh, that it'll do kindness for a thousand generations? So why do you say the tone is still so threatening? Answer is... It starts with the bad stuff. And that's the whole, like, if you listen to it, that's the topic sentence. So the topic sentence is, don't worship idols. I take it really seriously. I'm a vengeful God. I'm going to take revenge. It's not, not just going to be just you. It's going to bleed down for generations, right? And by the way, I do kindness for that. But that's the by the way. Do you understand that? The parenthetical inclusion, the overall tone is very threatening. But now listen to the very same words a dozen or so chapters later, when God reveals himself in the Yudgim and now let's talk about the tone. Now what's the context? What an interestingly, and think about it, like why is it that the Ten Commandments should be the predecessor of Yudgim What does the Ten Commandments have to do with Yudgim Why should language from Yudgim have started in the Ten Commandments? What? Who said that? That's right. Because they did the thing they weren't supposed to do in the second command. In other words, the second command was about theory. The Yud Gilmidot is about what happens if you actually do it. So, in theory, God says, here's the deal. Don't worship idols. It's really bad if you worship idols. I'm really going to take it out on you if you worship idols. It's really, really bad. Then they do it. Like, literally, not only do they do it, they do it while they're supposed to be accepting the very commands that say, you're not supposed to do it. What are they doing at the bottom of the mountain when just solemnly writing this text? They're doing that. They're worshiping the idols. It's like, oh my gosh, that is like a disaster. They're going to for sure get torched, right? And that, like, almost happens. God is like, I'm totally going to destroy them. Moshe's like, calm down, it's going to be okay. And there's this long discussion, at the end of which, you finally get these Yudhiyonidas, and God is like, so tell me who you really are. Like, what's this really about? And then God almost gives you, like, this context for these words, and says, you know who I really am? Hashem Hashem Kel Rafam I'm really a gracious and merciful God. Erach Hapayim, Rav Chesed 
full of compassion, right? And full and slow to anger and full of compassion and truth. Thinking, you know who I am? I'm the God who who finds the good and saves it for a thousand generations. I'm the God who's no say avon I'm the God who bears sin, iniquity, and transgression. But you should just know that doesn't mean that you get a free pass on things, right? It doesn't mean that you get completely cleansed of sins. Right? I, I visit the sins of fathers on generations. But actually in context, you can sort of understand that that's not as scary as it, like, first of all, the whole thing doesn't sound as scary. Let's talk about tone. What's the tone of all of this? Like I just said, you just heard this last paragraph, how do you feel about God, right? Better than before, right? I mean, like you've told me, you're a gracious and merciful God, you're full of compassion. You've highlighted the thing about the thousand generations. That's what came first, right? And then the parenthetical clause is the end. It's, by the way, it doesn't mean I completely overlook transgression. I will visit the sins of fathers upon children. But even in context of the eagle, you sort of say that and you breathe a sigh of relief because what's the alternative? Do you understand? If it weren't the case that God bears sin and, and, and it got a little bit over time, the, the other option is that God responds to idolatry in the moment, in which case, what happens? It's all over. Right? There's nobody left in second generation, or third generation, and fourth generation. So, like, given the alternatives, maybe this is better. So, without getting this too complicated at, the point, at this point, and there's a lot of mystery still about how the second commandment interacts with the but for the time being, let's come to a very simple conclusion. These ideas are evolving. Do you understand? If I was just reading the second commandment, I would have a certain vision of these ideas. I say the same words a dozen or so chapters later, and all of a sudden things are starting to look different. These ideas are evolving. There's a second clue to the evolution of these ideas, and it goes back even earlier than the Ten Commandments. The clue to that is the word shileshim. Shileshim is a very unusual word. Aside from the Ten Commandments and the Yugimidrachim, which are all talking about the same thing, the word shileshim, appears exactly once, one other time in the entire five books of Moses. Where else does the word shileshim appear? The only other time it appears. You can cheat. You can see my handouts. It appears at the very end of the book of Genesis in the Joseph story in a verse that most of us would frankly overlook. A verse that is so trivial that most of us would probably consign it to our list of top ten most trivial verses in the entire Torah. The verse just says that lucky, lucky Yosef, Yosef Lefraim, Yosef lived to a ripe old age and got to see Lefraim b'nei shileshim, right? Great grandchildren of Ephraim. Ah, oh, he had the nachas of seeing b'nei machir ben Menashe, yuldul al birke Yosef. Lucky for Yosef, he had such a tough life that at least he got some nachas from his grandkids at the end of his life, right? That's 
what you hear about. Seems to be a very innocuous verse. And that's the only other time you have the word shilashi. Now, I know. You say, all right, fine, big deal. It's just one word. Maybe it's just a coincidence. But it's not a coincidence. How do you know? Because it's not just one word. That story, the other story that has Shileshim, is also the other story, the original story, that talks about bearing sin. What did the brothers do when they came to Yosef? This whole story is a story of the brothers, after all these years, basically coming to ask forgiveness of Yosef and listen to their words. Anna, sonna pesha achacha v'chatasam. Please, could you bear the iniquity and the sin of your brothers, because they've done evil to you. Do you hear those words? Could you carry the sin of your brothers? Now listen to the Yirgomites. No say, avon, vafesha, ata. Those words, no say, fesha, vacha, from the only this sin. That part's the old story. When the person and Arda. It's not just that when it says, I will visit the sins of fathers upon children. Well, where's the original pokade in the Yosef story? Pokade, pay, kuf, dalad, in the Yosef story, in this part of the Yosef story, everybody? Where is that? Pakod Yifgod. Yosef, as he dies on his deathbed, turns to his brothers and says, in the verse immediately after the Shileshim, Yosef says, Anochim mate, I'm going to die. Velokim pakod yifgodetchem. But God will redeem you from here. It's even as Yosef sees the glorious sunset of his life, seeing his three generations to the fourth generation, he begins to see the storm clouds on the horizon and says, you're going to need some redemption from here and God is going to redeem you from here. Right? And it seems that all of this language is getting picked up, strangely, in the Yudgil Midrachim, starting with Sheli continuing with this Nose Avon, Fesha Vachata, and then concluding with the Pokate Avon, Avos Avon. It all is playing off of the Yosef story. And the great question is why? So tonight, what I want to do with you in our remaining time is to look at two stories to try to pull him, is reaching all the way back to the Yosef story for its origins, right? What does that mean? And how does that inform what's happening with the ego? Okay? It's a lot to do in 26 minutes. We're going to do our best. That's why I'm talking fast, by the way. It's not because I usually talk fast. It's because we don't have a lot of time. Okay? So, let's dig in and look at the Yosef story briefly. As we look at the Yosef story, I'd like to do it in the following way. I want you to pay attention to two things. A, how do the verses string together? How do they connect to each other in this story of the, of the brothers asking forgiveness of Yosef? And B, not only how do the verses connect to each other, but what would it be like to be there? Do you understand? I want you to, often when we read stories, we read them in third person. We read them as happening about someone else. What if it were you? What if you were Yosef? What would it feel like to be Yosef? How does that change your view of the story? Okay. So let's begin and see what we make of this story. So, the brothers of Yosef saw that their father had died. Maybe Yosef will bear a grudge against us. 
and he will take retribution for us for all the terrible things that we've done against him. So the brothers came up with a plan. And, and as you read the plan, I want you to pretend that you were Yosef and ask you, how does this feel like to you? Ready? Okay, let's just understand some context. How long have you been living with the brothers in Egypt by now? 17 years. How have things been going between you and them? Pretty good. What have you been doing? You've been feeding them, taking care of them, right? There have been famine, but you've made sure things are good for your brothers. Have you guys been talking a lot about what happened in the pit all those years ago? No, that's kind of like off the table. That would be a little awkward, right? So do you guys, you smile at each other in the hallways, you understand? You get together for Thanksgiving dinner, smiles all around. Nobody's really talking about what happened at the pit. You understand? All right. Then, after 17 years, the brothers come to Yosef and it's like we got to talk. Right? What's it like to be Yosef now? So first of all, if I just say, just put it to you like that, brothers come to Yosef and say, we got to talk. How are you feeling, Yosef? Talk to me. How are you feeling? Can I have a Yosef, please? Right? Baruch Hashem. I hear like finally there, right? Okay. And, and, and how are you feeling? Give me an emotion of how you're feeling. Emotion would be? No emotions? Hope. Do you understand? It's like there's been this awkward silence about what happened all these years ago. But maybe the brothers are coming. Right? We're going to put it behind us. They're going to apologize. Maybe we can have a good cry. You understand? All right. So. No, that's true. It, but that happened before, interestingly. They knew that it was Yosef, right? So in other words. That's true. Yosef does. That's right. So you had in the beginning, you had that first story with, with Yehuda, right? But the brothers are now coming. And here's what they say. They see that their father has died, and they say, maybe Yosef will hate us, and he'll take revenge against us. So, Vayitzabuel Yosef, the command of Yosef, they issue a command to Yosef, and they say, Avichatziva, we just want to let you know, your father commanded before his death, in a deathbed command that you are not aware of, and he said, he told us, Kotamru, that this is what we're supposed to say to you, after he dies. Kotamul Yosef. This is what you're supposed to say. Anna, we say in the name of our father, Sana Pesha Chachavachatasam, could you please bear the iniquity of your brothers and their sins, Kirag Maluka, because they've done some sins to you, Ba'ata, and now, therefore, Sana Pesha would you please bear our sins? You know, and we'd like to know if you're willing to uphold this deathbed commandment of your father. You're Yosef, how are you feeling? Disappointed. That's to put it mildly, right? I mean, wh why are you, like, maybe feeling not so good about this? Give me three quick reasons. Anybody? Clearly they're lying. Clearly they're lying. I don't... If Dad really wanted... He would have told me. Right? Wouldn't he have told me? Do you understand? Why tell them? It's like the Hasidish story about the, you know, the Rebbe who dies, and the brothers are fighting over who's going to take over the crown, right? And then one brother said, It's settled. Father came to me in a dream last night and said, I'm supposed to be the next Rebbe. Right? The other brother says, well, if Dad wanted you to be the next Rebbe, you should have come to me in the dream. Do you know what I mean? So if you're Yosef, that's like, one second, if there was this deathbed command, don't you think he probably should have talked to me? 
So I'm not even sure if it's true. Rashi, in fact, says it wasn't true. That's one problem. Another problem is, like, how come it took so long? Why did we have to wait 17 years until father died in order to have this conversation, right? Is that, uh, like, maybe what's propelling this is fear of, you know, a fear of retribution. Also, has any apology been made here? No, if you think about it, there's no apology. What did they come and say? Now let's, and now we get to the actual words, and I want you to listen to these words carefully. We all think all these words for forgiveness are all the same. Like, they're not all the same. In the Yudhikim, what does it mean to be no se avon? It comes from here. What were the brothers asking? Son na lepesha. A, they were not asking forgiveness. They weren't apologizing. What, were they, what do they mean when they say, Dad says you're supposed to bear their sin? You carry it. What does that mean? You carry it. You carry it. What do you mean carry it? What's the, what's the imagery of carrying the sin? Can anyone explain that to me? Who bears the sin? You understand? If I'm a victim of a sin, right? What am I? I'm bearing something. You understand? Like, I feel victimized, right? But, I feel like, I'm carrying this cross. I'm carrying, the, I'm carrying this terrible thing, right? But bearing the sin is something even more than that. All human relationships seek balance, right? So if you sin, if you wound me, right, you hurt me, so our relationship is out of balance, right? Our relationship craves balance. How's it going to get it back into balance? Now, it could through an apology and an acceptance of apology, but short of that, the other opportunity is vengeance. Do you understand? Like, if I care, so tit for tat. Like, I'll, I'll respond, and that way it'll be even. So, but if somebody comes to me and says, well, one second, could you bear that sin? What does that mean? It means you bear the discomfort, the awkwardness in our relationship, right? That I don't take revenge to even the scales. Not only should you bear the trauma of being put in the pit and all of that, right? But the uncomfy feeling between us where you're feeling like something should be set right, that's just going to be the way it is for, forever, for a long time. And we want you to bear that. Do you understand? It's almost like a, a secondary injustice to Yosef. Speaking, by the way, of that, that, that vivid language of bearing sin, of, of carrying sin. How did Joseph get down to Egypt? Anyone remember? The caravan of Ishmaelites that were carrying all those spices. No sin, and then carried Joseph. He gets carried down to Egypt, and now the brothers talking about that sin of having him carried down to Egypt. Can you, can you carry that sin? We'd like you to carry that sin for us. So what's Joseph's response? Now what's the connection to the next story? The, the next story right? Let's figure out what happened here. Yosef cried when they said this to him. Now one way of looking at that is very optimistic. Right? Tears all around. Yosef is crying. Right? He, maybe he forgives them. Maybe, um, maybe everything is good. And, 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 and that, right, is that, are you convinced that that's what's going on when Yosef's crying? Is there another explanation for his tears? Why else might he be crying? Disappointment. Oh, these, my hopes have been dashed. Like, how have I been living these last 17 years? It's been a little awkward, but I've compartmentalized the trauma. You know what I mean? Like, 
put it in a little door over there. There's this do not enter sign. I'm not going there. I smile at you the hallways. We don't talk about the pit. But then you come to me and say, we got to talk, right? So you're opening the door. And now I'm in with my nightmares, but I'm hoping that it'll be resolved, but it's not resolved. Instead, could you bear this sin? Well, it's like I'm going to cry because now I'm alone with my nightmares, right? The brothers seem to have intuited that it didn't work, whatever they were trying to do, because the next things they say is they bow before him and they say, let us be your slaves. Now, why did they say that? Well, what did they do to him? They enslaved him. So by saying, let us be your slaves, what were they really saying? Like, if you're not going to bear our sin, take revenge. take revenge, I guess, like, let us be your slaves, right? What's Yosef's response to that? Well, read the next words. It's really kind of interesting. Did Yosef say yes to that offer, or did he say no? The answer is, he said neither. Look carefully at what he actually said. Don't be afraid. Do you think I'm in place of God? What was he saying there? The thing is, it's not really up to me to decide the question of whether you'll be slaves. That's best left for God. That's not really for... You think I'm God? It's up to God. We aren't God, right? So... Yosef declines to say yes or to say no. And then he says something else. He seeks to reassure the brothers. You thought you were doing bad things to me. You know what? It was guys. Look, you did think you were doing bad things to me, but look at what happened. God made it turn out good. Because God made it that I became second in charge to the crown. And now I can feed you and I can make you into an Amra, this great nation. So if you want, it really is up to God as to what to do about all this, as to whether or not you guys should be slaves. But don't worry, guys. Like, my opinion is, like, if you want to know what God's opinion on all this is, God's probably okay because, like, yeah, you did do these terrible things, but God turned it around and made it great. That for the, it was all shared. It was all part of God's plan. You're just playing unwittingly into God's hand so that I can make you into an Amrav. It's all great. And then, and then Yosef speaks kindly to them. But here's the thing. It sort of sounds like the story ends well. It sounds like Yosef is saying, like, look, it's probably okay. Everything is fine. The great question at the end of the story is when Yosef said neither yes nor no to the offer of let us be your slaves and instead said, it's not up to me, it's up to God. The real question is, what did God say? What did God say? Put yourself in God's shoes. What would you say if you were God? I don't know about you, but if I was God, I'd say... Like, did anybody call my name? Like, I didn't think this was up to me. Like, this is between you guys. Like, do you forgive him or don't you forgive him? Are you apologizing or are you not apologizing? But it's muddled, do you understand? The brothers, they're hiding behind their father. 
and pretending as if Father has issued this command to bear the sin. And Yosef, he's also, instead of just accepting to forgive them or saying, like, let's redo it, he's also hiding behind his father, hiding behind his father in heaven. Not up to me, up to God. Everybody's hiding behind their father and nobody's having an actual conversation. And instead, God is like, I don't know, I didn't think it was up to me, but, like, if these people have sinned terribly against Joseph, and Yosef is like, you know, not really accepting their apology, because it wasn't really much of an apology, and there's this offer of slavery on the table, and Yosef says it's up to me. I don't think it was up to me, but, like, if there's an offer of slavery on the table, we could do slavery. <laughs> this is the last verses of the book of Genesis. Turn the page into Exodus, and everybody's slaves. Do you understand? And how did they become slaves? They became slaves because Yosef, so sure that God's providence is shining like a happy beacon upon this scene, that it, amrav, that I'm here to make you into an amrav. Amrav, anybody? What do the words amrav remind you of in the book of Exodus? Who said words amrav in the book of Exodus? Those are Pharaoh's words. That's his paranoia. Pharaoh's paranoia is stoked by exactly the process that Yosef thinks is so good. Yosef has fed his brothers, allowing a population explosion to happen while the Egyptian famine was raging. Pharaoh looks at that population explosion, says, Hine am b'nei Yisrael rav menu, and decides to enslave them. And at a moment, the slavery happens through Joseph's imagined words of how God thinks it's all fine. And this is the way the first great forgiveness story plays out in the Torah. This is the legacy of bearing sin. Now, scarily, these words are going to repeat themselves in the Yudhim Aminas Right? Like, what do we even make of that? The story didn't end well. What's going on? We only have a little bit of time left. So let's turn our gaze to the Egel story and look at that for some final context. The story of the Egel begins at a desperate moment. Moshe is informed by God, go down, your people have corrupted themselves. Right? And then he says, leave me alone, and my anger will flare against them, and I'll destroy them. And at that moment, Moshe does his first of three acts of great chutzpah, which are unrivaled in the relationship between God and man, seemingly. Rivaled maybe only by Avram itself. His first great act of chutzpah is that God said, leave me alone and I'll destroy them. And Moshe's like, one second. If I read you correctly, that implies that if I don't leave you alone... Maybe you won't destroy them. So I'm not going to leave you. So Moshe stays there at the top of the mountain and will not go down and bargains with God at the top of the mountain. Now, the Ramban asks, like, why didn't he go down to the bottom of the mountain, get the people to do tshuva, and then go up to the mountain and try to bargain with God with the tshuva of the people. 
And the Rabban basically answers that he didn't have that option because what did God say? Leave me alone and I am going to destroy them, which means by the time Moshe gets to the bottom of the mountain, what does he find? Nobody's left. Do you understand? So he's stuck at the top of the mountain without anything to say. What's he going to say? How's he going to defend the indefensible? So Moshe comes up with a, a seemingly ludicrous but ingenious plan. Lama Can you imagine me, God, and hearing those words? God, lama Why are you so mad at your people? This supposed to be accepting the Torah. They're dancing around a calf. What do you mean? Why am I so mad at the people? But basically, Moshe boxes God in and says, no, I didn't mean why in the sense of what happened to get you so mad at the people. I didn't say madua. I said lama, lima, to what end? To what end are you going to be angry? Where is this anger going to take you? Look what happens if you get angry at the people. If you get angry at the people, your friends aren't going to, and you're going to destroy them. Think how your friends are going to act and how your enemy is going to act. Your friends. The others. They're not going to be impressed. You promised them that you were going to bring them into the land. Star, like the stars of the heavens. They're not going to be impressed with just me and Gershom, my son, hobbling into the land. Like that's, they're not going, to, not going to take that well. And the Egyptians, they're going to say, that you didn't have the power to bring them in. You're stuck. Added to the people, you can't do anything. You can't destroy them. And God is like, fine. You win a reprieve. I'm not destroying them immediately, but we'll see. Moshe goes to the bottom of the mountain, destroys the calf, and then comes back to God. And when he comes back to God, he comes back with his second great act of chutzpah. He says, God, you've got a choice. Reminiscent of William Glasser's choice theory in psychology, the power of giving someone a choice. And basically, right, but you give them the choice you want to give them. And Moshe says, here's your choice. You want to start with me. So, this people, they... They sinned grievously, a terrible sin. And now, I'm asking you, Va'ata, and you can find this in your text, in Pazaglamad Beis, in the Shemot section, Va'ata in Tisa Chatasam, if you bear their sin, if you carry their sin, Bim'ayin Macheni Namisir Pachachachatavta, you can decide to bear their sin. That's fine. But if you don't, and you destroy them, you've got to destroy me too. You just wipe my name out of the book. I'm not interested. So I go with them. So what are you going to do, God? You're going to destroy everybody and me? Or not? Or are you going to bear their sin? And it works. And God relents. But notice that language that he used. What did he ask? He asked what the brothers asked of Yosef back in Genesis. Could you bear the sin? Do you understand? Now listen to that, how that colors God's response to Moshe. What's God's response to Moshe? Fine, you boxed me in. Here's what I need to tell you. Fine, I'll I'll take the people into the land, but you should just know I'm not going to take them into the land. My malach is going to take them into the land. An angel is going to take them in. And you should know something else too. If you're asking me to bear the sin, and this language also borrows from the Yosef story, the, the, there was this glorious promise of that God will bring us from the land all the way to the promised land. That's what he said. And God will bring you to the promised land. Yosef's promise was in jeopardy because of the ego. Maybe it wouldn't happen. Maybe they would die here. 
God says, no, I'm willing to honor the promise of Pakod Yifkod, but you should just know, in place of the glorious promise of Pakod Yifkod, that I will take them from that land and bring them to the land of Israel, you should just know that any time I'm intimate with this people, any time there's closeness between me and them, there'll be a little bit of the sin that will come to haunt my relationship with them. And they'll feel punishment and pain at all moments of closeness. And that's what it is, a betrayal. If you think about a marriage that suffers betrayal, even if the marriage survives, when do you really feel it? At moments of intimacy, right? Then that's what brings to mind that sense of betrayal. And God says that's the way it's going to be. And it's going to be that way ultimately for generations, right? So you can stop me from destroying the people in an instant if you want. You can play that game, but that doesn't wipe away sin. Do you understand? All that's happening is you're forcing me to carry this sin. Sins don't get carried for free, right? If I carry a sin, it's there. It's real. It's not easy to carry a sin, to bear a sin. And that, and that anger and that frustration is going to leak out over time, and it's going to haunt the relationship. I'm just about out of time. I'm not quite out of time with you, so I, I just can't take questions yet. No, no, I'm Oh, that's the well, three minutes left. But um, yes, <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to. If you need to leave, leave. But I'm, I'll try to finish as fast as I can. Okay. What happens next? What happens next is essentially I'm just abridging this. But what happens next basically is that is essentially Moshe ends up winning. He wins in all external ways. He's able to guarantee that God's not going to destroy the people that go to the land. There's only one problem. There's going to be a Malach that takes them into the land, not God, because God cannot stand to be with them. They're an Am Cheoref. And beyond Pakti, there's going to, the sin, they're going to feel it over time, right? Okay. But now, if I, my motion, I present that to you and you're the people, do you take that deal or do you not take that deal? Is it a good deal or is it a bad deal? Consider the alternatives, boys and girls. It's a good deal. Do you understand? The alternative is you don't exist. The fascinating thing is, look at the next words. The next words are, The people heard this terrible thing, and they mourned. What was the terrible thing? That God wouldn't be with them. That a malach would be before them. And that seems to catch God's attention. Oh, you think it's terrible that I'm not with you. All right, we'll see. Let's see what happens. And this seems to be the beginning of a softening in God's tone, which then continues to the moment when Moshe says, I really need to see who you are. Are you really just anger? Who are you really? Show me who you really are. And God says, fine, I'll reveal myself to you. This is who I really am. And that's when you have the Gilgilomi to Zerachim. I'm a Kalrachim Bechanim, Erachapayim. I'm gracious and compassionate. I'm full of love. I'm really about keeping kindness for a thousand generations. But you should know that I'm no say avon vafeshavachata. I will bear sin, but bearing sin, nake lo yinake, does not cleanse it. And it's going to come out over the generations. It's at that moment that Moshe makes his subtle but probably greatest act of chutzpah of all. Listen to what he says in response to that. And we immortalize these words in our slichos. Moshe says, 
It's on page two towards the top. I'll close with these words. Moshe goes and he bows down. And he just saw something. He hurries. He just saw something. What did he see? He saw that God is basically about compassion. So add it up. If God is basically about compassion, if he's the God who, if you leave it to him, he's Kelchanan Barachum, he's Erech Hapayim, he's Rav Chesed, and then he's Noter Chesed Lalafim. So why is it that he's Poket Avon Avos, Albanim, 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 this terrible thing that visits the sins of fathers on children? The answer can only be the words right before that. I am no say avon vafeshavakata. I am willing to bear sin. But what's the context for that? Yosef. I'm willing to do what Yosef did. Think what Yosef did. He bore the sin of the brothers for how many generations? Throughout his whole lifetime, he lived for three generations, four generations. But then when he was dead, the vice snapped shut. And the sin wasn't over. It was still there. He bore it for as long as he was alive. But then it engulfed everyone. God says, like, I too, I'm telling you, these four generations, it's a real thing. I'm even nicer. I'll just spread it out over four generations until it dissipates. I'm not going to allow it to explode in one moment. It's a terrible thing. Moshe comes to the conclusion that he asked for the wrong thing. The only precedent you ever had for forgiveness in the Torah was to be no se avon. You never have anything else to bear sin. That's all the brothers ever asked of Yosef. They could have asked more. They didn't. They never had the conversation about apologies. They never had the conversation about forgiveness. Moshe comes to the conclusion that the problem that precipitates pokeda avon avos avonim is the words right before that. No se avon vafesha. But God said, I will be no Salem Vesha. Why? Because you asked at me. I will not give you more than you asked. What did he ask? Moshe said, could you please bear our sin? God said, sure, I'll bear your sin. Bearing sins comes with consequences. Along comes Moshe, and it's like, I asked for the wrong thing. And Moshe comes up with a new thing. And here's what he says. Here's what I'm actually asking you, God. The first thing I'm asking you is let's get rid of this stupid angel thing, right? There's not going to be an angel. We aren't going anywhere if we, excuse me, if we don't go with you. You need to not just lead us, you need to walk among us. You need to be there with us. The very thing you said you couldn't do. You know why you said you couldn't do it? Because it was too dangerous. Because we're an Amche Oref. We're so terrible that we're an Amche Oref. And you can't bear to be with us. Well, here's what I'm asking you, God. Yelech na Hashem Walk with us. Walk inside of us. Why? Ki am Is he crazy? Why bring that up? That's the reason God says he wants to kill us. Moshe says, no, I'm asking for something else. This is a new thing. It's called forgiveness. It's a whole new thing. It's, there's no precedent for it. I'm making it up. Here's what I believe, Moshe says. The people are sorry. You know they're sorry. They said they desperately wanted to be with you. They said it was a bad thing that they could go into the land because they weren't going with you. They want that closeness with you. They're sorry. The problem is they can be sorry. They can change that. They can change their feeling about what they did, regret. 
But you know what they can't change? The thing that you're focused on. They can't change their essence. They are an Amche Oref. They have that Mida. They are stiff necked. Sue them. That's what they're like. They're probably going to do it again. That's just the way it is. They're sorry, but they're probably going to do it again. A relationship means you can't pick and choose the qualities of your beloved. You take them as a whole. You take them with their good parts, and you take them with their bad parts. You've got to take us for who we are. You have to look us in the eye and see our deepest flaw, the reason why you might destroy us, and say, Af al this is the people I love, and I will walk with them, and I don't care. These, the people, I have a relationship with the people as a whole. Their flaw is there, and I accept it. It's one of the deepest things you could do. And then he says something else, which it just knocks your socks off. He says, not only that, the salafta, I want you to forgive their sin. Do you know this is the first time in the entire Torah the word slicha ever appears? Moshe made up the word. He said, I want you to erase the sin. I want you to start over, right? It's a new slate and accept who we really are. Not only is this the beginning of the idea of forgiveness, it's the definition of the idea of forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive? It means to accept, the, to accept who your beloved is, accept their sin, and seeing us who we are, you, God, need to accept us. Not Bidiyavet, you have to accept us as your legacy. We're going to go into the land. You're going to give us the land as a nachla, and we will be your legacy there. This is the beginning of forgiveness. This is a whole new idea. And Chazal, in the Yud Gimel as we have them, understood that and edited it to reflect it and said that the upshot of this whole conversation, it's as if Moshe's response became part of the Yogyamim Yisrochim, and it stopped at Benakeh, because at the end of the day, God does cleanse him, because Moshe came along with something new, and God accepted it. He accepted it implicitly here, and explicitly in Bamidbar, and that's Visham Na'amar, right? And, that, and there it says, V'salachti Kidvarecha. That God said, not just that I'll forgive, as you've said, I'll accept this new idea that you brought into the world, right? God, lead, God expects us human beings to lead and he'll follow. I'll work with whatever concepts of forgiveness you guys are working with. If the best you guys can muster among yourselves is bearing sin, I'll be the expert at bearing sin. I'll bear sin, I'll do that. Just understand that you're asking for something that has its limits. If you can conceive of something new, I'll respond to that as well. What you're looking in the story of the aftermath of the Egel is the birth of the idea of forgiveness. And that's what gets memorialized in the, the Slichas as we have them. Thank you.